Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 188, The Great Schism. On the morning of July 16th, 1054, three papal representatives left their lodgings in Constantinople and made their way to the Hagia Sophia. The liturgy was taking place inside the church, but the three men deliberately interrupted proceedings. They announced their intentions and then entered the sanctuary, a major no-no in itself, and then placed on the altar a formal decree of excommunication directed at the Byzantine Patriarch. One of the sub-deacons hastily grabbed the document and tried to hand it back to the papal ambassadors, who threw it on the ground. The three men marched for the door, pausing only to shake the dust from their feet as they left, leaving behind a stunned group of Byzantine clergy. This incident is commonly referred to as the Great Schism, the moment when the Eastern and Western churches broke apart, formally recognising that they could no longer respect the practices of the other. The reason this event has drawn so much attention are the geopolitical consequences which follow, including the Norman takeover of southern Italy and eventually the sack of Constantinople by the Crusaders. So, what happened here? How did it come to this? And what did it really mean? Over the past decade, the Byzantine government has been consumed by the Pecheneg Wars and the financial crisis they provoked. Understandably, this meant that Italy received little imperial attention, and as you might expect, it is in Italy that relations with the papacy were changing. There is a complex web of interactions to unpick here, but let's start with the catalyst for the Great Schism, one of our three new destructive peoples on the scene, the Normans. We last discussed the Normans back in episode 184. They had already started to seize Italian forts and lands for themselves, but their true threat was not yet appreciated. 
In the early 1040s, the Byzantines still perceived them to be merely unruly mercenary troops who were angling for a better payday. In order to calm things down, Monomachos decided to appoint a local to be the governor of Byzantine Italy. This man was Ahiros, a Catholic Lombard, son of a famous rebel who had given Basil II some trouble in his day. But Ahiros, as his Byzantine name attests, had grown up in Constantinople as a hostage. He spoke Greek and knew how the empire functioned. The assumption was that Ahiros would keep the Normans in check and put them to work on Byzantium's behalf. That is not what happened. In the past, foreign invaders had struggled to conquer southern Italy because of its fractured geography. Its hilltop towns and well-guarded port cities were a nightmare to besiege. So both the Sicilian Arabs and the German emperors had failed in attempts to gain a foothold in Byzantine territory. The Normans did not plan on sweeping all before them. They simply worked with what they had, using one stronghold as a base to attack the next. They would ride out from their castle, terrorise the neighbouring population, and go home. After a few weeks of this, the local defence force would have to come out and meet them, the superior Norman cavalry would prevail, and eventually many local communities decided that it was better to pay the Normans, either to leave them alone, or indeed to become their protectors, rather than continue to be assaulted. These tactics were particularly successful, in part because they did not draw the attention of larger powers until it was too late. Norman lords were also operating independently from one another, all desperate to get their own slice of the pie, again making it harder to understand their actions from afar. The Normans were making piecemeal gains throughout the 1040s, both in the Lombard territories in the centre of Italy and in the Byzantine south. On the few occasions that Ahiros brought some Normans to battle, he was defeated by their superior cavalry charges. We should be clear that had Constantinople been able to send a field army against them, the Normans would have been crushed. But as you know, the empire had no money and no men to spare. Ahiros was recalled to Constantinople in the middle of the decade, and his deputies had no more luck fighting the Normans than he had. He returned in 1051 with a plan. Since Byzantium couldn't provide more soldiers, they would have to be found in Italy itself. And fortunately for the Empire, they were not the only ones who wanted to be rid of the Normans. The other established powers, the Lombard kingdoms, the various city-states, and the papacy were also alarmed by the Northmen's depredations. The papacy in particular was concerned because the Normans were stripping wealth from occupied churches. Diplomatic efforts were directed at forming an anti-Norman army that could dislodge them. In 1053, events came to a head. Ahiros marched inland from Bari, while the papal coalition formed to the north. Faced with a real threat for once, the disparate Normans banded together and fought as one. They defeated Ahiros and then marched to Civitate, 
and routed the papal army. In the aftermath, the Pope himself fell into Norman hands. He would remain their honoured guest for the next ten months. It was this disastrous defeat which prompted the papacy to send a delegation to Constantinople in 1054 to discuss how they could better work together against their common enemy. And it was this delegation that excommunicated the Patriarch. That's the strategic background to these events, but on both sides of the Adriatic there were important religious developments taking place that we need to discuss. We're more familiar with the Byzantine side, so let's start there. The patriarch Alexius, the man who'd had to look the other way as Zoe went through several questionable marriage ceremonies, had died in early 1043. To replace him, Monomachos had chosen the infamous Michael Kirularios. As you know, Monomachos had been implicated in a plot against the Paphlagonians and sent into exile. Kirularios was another who had been similarly targeted. Rather than disappear to a distant island, Michael had agreed to become a monk. When Monomachos ascended to the throne, Kirularios regained his place in high society, and the two bonded over their shared experience. A forceful and charismatic character, Kirularios impressed the emperor and was elevated to the archbishopric. I call him infamous because two important sources for this period rail against his arrogance and hubris. As you may have guessed, one of these witnesses is about to journey to Constantinople on behalf of the papacy. The other is our historian Michael Psellos. Psellos, by this point, had risen very high in the capital. Not only was he head of higher education and a writer of imperial propaganda, but he was also a personal friend and advisor to the emperor. Psellos was therefore a target for court intrigue, and he and Kirularios ended up clashing. Whether the patriarch moved against Psellos for cynical reasons or out of genuine piety, we don't know, but move against him he did. As patriarch, Kirularios wanted to push the church's agenda and protect its dominant position in Byzantine society. Psellos made himself a target by trying to revive pre-Christian learning. By giving lectures on ancient philosophy and other topics of interest, Psellos could be seen as encouraging heretical ideas. We get a glimpse here of how imperial politics could work. Monomachos did not have the power or could not be seen to dismiss these accusations against his courtier, so Psellos was forced to defend himself in front of a church synod and sign a formal confession of his orthodox faith, a process that was doubtless something of a humiliation. This took place in the same year, 1054, as the papal embassy arrived. It was during this period that Psellos lost faith in Monomachos and feared that the emperor would not protect him from his enemies. Anyway, it was not just Psellos who was under suspicion. As you know, 
Large numbers of non-Orthodox Christians had entered the empire during its expansion. The Orthodox establishment struggled with how to deal with these heretical Armenians and Monophysites. It was impractical to force them to change their ways, and so what the sources leave us with is an angry exchange of sermons and letters from across this period as each side learnt more about the practices of the other. A fresh sticking point for the Byzantines was the practice in many Armenian churches of using unleavened bread during the Eucharist. As I'm sure you know, the bread given to congregants during this ceremony was meant to represent Jesus' body, and so this was a highly sensitive topic. The Orthodox understood bread in the context of the Gospels to mean baked bread, as you would see in most loaves today. Unleavened bread is flat bread, made without yeast or other raising agents, and was traditionally associated with the Jewish Passover meal. For the Orthodox, the use of unleavened bread felt uncomfortably close to Jewish practice, and not the bread which Jesus had instructed his followers to use. One of the counter-arguments was that the Last Supper was a Passover meal, and therefore Jesus would have been using unleavened bread. There was, of course, plenty more said about this issue at the time, but hopefully that gives you a sense of why it was such a hot topic. The use of unleavened bread was, by this point, also common practice in Western services, something which Kirularios could see in the churches of the capital's Italian merchants. This became a major point of contention between the Patriarch and Ahiros during his stay in Constantinople. The Lombard general was one of the few men with the education and position to actually debate the Byzantine establishment on the issue, something which angered Kirularios, who refused Ahiros' communion as a result. Keen to protect his Italian governor, Monomachos did not slap Ahiros down over this, leaving Kirularios frustrated. So, we've got the Normans running riot in Italy, and a Byzantine patriarch ticked off about Western church practice. Let's get our final batch of kindling from the papacy itself. We have now reached the era of papal reform often referred to as Gregorian reform in popular history. This movement will lead to huge social and religious change, including the Crusades, so rest assured we will come back to it. But for now, I'll have to boil things down to generalities to keep the story moving. The reform movement came from a desire by monks and clergymen across Western Europe to restore their calling to its apostolic origins, to remove sinful practices which had crept in, and to eliminate interference by secular powers in the affairs of the Church. One of the most glaring problems was the sale of Church offices by regional lords. Last week we talked about Byzantine elites buying titles at court. In much of the West, you could buy the office of bishop or abbot. With those offices came extensive lands and privileges that were worth the financial investment. 
This meant that many of the highest clergy in the land had little interest in religious matters. They ignored their pastoral duties, and in many cases had wives or mistresses, or took part in war and politics. Understandably, the fact that the most sinful of secular men could buy a bishopric upset a lot of people. For pious churchmen across Europe, this was the worst of a list of indignities they felt were keeping the church from fulfilling its true role in society. The papacy naturally saw a leading role for itself in this movement. The city of Rome was a microcosm of the problem. The papal throne had, for a long time, been a battleground between the German emperors and the local Italian families who dominated the city. Leading up to 1050, a series of reforming pontiffs had come to power, not only determined to rid the church of secular abuses, but also to make sure that the pope himself was the unquestioned head of the church. After all, if the church was to separate itself from control by secular powers, then it needed a strong, independent leader, one who could instill discipline from above and crack down on abuses by subordinates. The reformers therefore began to assert the claims of the pope to be the head of the church, as in the leader of all Christians. Only someone with that level of authority could free himself from the control of the Holy Roman Emperors. But such a claim did not sit well in Byzantium. Over on the Bosphorus, the Pope was considered first among equals, but very much among equals. The archbishops of Constantinople, Antioch, Jerusalem and Alexandria all had a say on church doctrine, hence the need for all those ecumenical councils to sort out various controversies. In practice, of course, Constantinople would lead the way on any such initiative, and so ultimately the Pope's claim to speak for all Christians clashed with the Byzantine Emperor's claim to do the same. Again, I'm simplifying. Neither side was arguing over this point in 1054, but I'm just giving you the ideological context for what follows. So, the Normans can't be stopped, an alliance must be formed, just as religious differences were starting to become more noticeable on each side. Onto this big pile of kindling, we throw a match in the form of a letter. It was written by the Bishop of Ohrid in Bulgaria. The bishop was a Byzantine, and he had become concerned by the host of divergent Western practices that he was hearing about. Now, as we've discussed before, Eastern and Western churches had been growing apart for centuries. A lot of what they did differently was just cultural rather than theological. But the bishop duly wrote them all out as a list of errors and dispatched it to Rome for the Pope's edification, including the controversial issue of the unleavened bread. The letter was received with horror in Rome. The attitude 
the author displayed was antithetical to the goals of the reformers. The Pope should not, could not, be lectured on doctrine by a subordinate prelate. The reply which came back from the desk of Pope Leo IX made this point explicitly. The Pope is head of the Church. Our practices are, by definition, correct, and you should bring yourself in line with us. One of the arguments used to prove this was that a series of Byzantine patriarchs and emperors had been marked down as heretics across the centuries, whereas not a single pontiff was on that list. The letter was to be delivered by the ambassadors in person on their visit to Constantinople to discuss the Norman problem. And here's where our misunderstandings begin. The original letter was from the Bishop of Ohrid. We have no evidence that it had any imperial backing at all. Yet by the time it was read in Rome, it was understood to reflect the views of the patriarch Kirularius. The ambassadors may have had this suspicion confirmed when they travelled to Bari and met with Ahiros. As we just heard, Ahiros and the Patriarch were now personal enemies, and the general may well have confirmed that the views expressed in the letter were those of Kirularios. Now, that was probably true, as in Kirularios probably did agree that the Western Church was in error on a number of points. But, again, there's no evidence that he would have been so undiplomatic as to point this out to the Pope. The three ambassadors chosen were all high-ranking clergymen in Pope Leo's entourage, and officially they were known as papal legates. They arrived in Constantinople in April and met with Monomachos, presumably just to discuss the Normans. Next, they met with Kirolarios. He says they were rude to him, and we suspect simply referred to him as Archbishop, as opposed to Ecumenical Patriarch, as he was used to being addressed. This was a formal visit, and no important matters were discussed, but the letter from Pope Leo was handed over. It may be that it was only at this point that the Patriarch realised the hostility of the legates. Once the letter was translated, he would have realised how potentially fraught the situation was. As far as we know, he never again met the three visitors. It seems likely that when Monomachos saw the letter, he ordered his patriarch to keep his distance. The Italian alliance was very important to the emperor, and it would be best if these controversial issues were swept firmly under the carpet. It would seem, though, that the doctrinal issues did come up during the emperor's discussions with the visitors, because according to the Latin accounts, a Byzantine monk was brought out to recant his criticism of Western practices. The monk in question seems to have been on poor terms with Monomachos and suffered for it. On the 24th of June, he was forced to publicly renounce a treatise he'd written some time before, and have it publicly burnt in front of the visitors. 
as I say, we only know of this story from the Western sources. So if true, it suggests that Monomachos found a scapegoat and sacrificed him on the altar of expediency. Monomachos wanted to be on good terms with the Pope, and he wanted that anti-Norman alliance. He had no interest in debating theology, and we're told that he was friendly and gracious throughout. We know almost nothing else about the ambassadors' time in Constantinople before their dramatic visit to the Hagia Sophia. Twenty-two days passed between the staged embarrassment of the monk and the excommunication. Reading between the lines, modern historians suspect that the visitors agitated to see the patriarch and presumably receive a formal apology from him. That was not going to happen, and possibly with fine Byzantine delay tactics deployed, the visitors were repeatedly fobbed off and distracted rather than being told why no formal meeting was possible. There is one other thing you should know. Pope Leo IX died on the 19th of April, 1054, shortly after his delegation had arrived in Constantinople. By July the 16th, both sides would have known that this was the case, which meant that nothing the three legates said or agreed to could now be officially honoured. Perhaps that's why the three men decided to excommunicate the patriarch. They must have known that their action had no legal force and would almost certainly not be endorsed by Leo's successor. But it allowed them to vent their frustration at Kirularios for avoiding them. And it made a great statement about papal supremacy. You are merely one of his subordinate archbishops, susceptible to being disciplined like any other prelate. This decree may not be honoured, but symbolically, Kirularius had been put in his place. The wording of the excommunication was clear. It was Kirularius and the bishop of Orit who were being targeted. The emperor and people of Constantinople were excluded and praised. However, the justification given for the decree was a tit-for-tat list of all the errors in Orthodox Church practice. The legates then left the city, still on friendly terms with Monomachos, and started for home. In the meantime, Kirularios had the decree translated and given to the emperor, the ambassadors were halted by Byzantine troops 50 miles from the city gates and brought back. They refused to discuss the matter in front of a church synod, and so sticking to his diplomatic line, the emperor let them go again. Out of sight, he authorized Kirularius to hold the synod, condemn their actions, and find a suitable explanation for the affair. The patriarch was in no doubt who was to blame. He claimed that Ahiros must have influenced the legates or even tampered with the Pope's letter. He had some of Ahiros's relatives, who were resident at the capital, arrested, and a couple of translators were given rough treatment for their supposed errors. Once again, in typical Byzantine fashion, the matter was put on file and not pursued with Rome. 
In the Synod's report, though, Kirularios gives a full refutation of the charges, including a list of all the ways in which the Latin Church was, in fact, in error. Back in Rome, the delegates claimed their mission was a success, and one of the three would be chosen to become Pope Stephen IX three years later. So, what are we to make of all this? First of all, it's worth saying that none of the Byzantine historians mentions this incident at all. It was not seen at the time as representing a major break between the two churches, more of a diplomatic spat. Even in Rome, the incident doesn't seem to have made a big impact. Once he was Pope, Stephen IX made plans to dispatch another embassy to Byzantium to once again form the anti-Norman alliance. The fact that Kirularios was still patriarch at that point made no apparent difference to one of the men who'd tried to excommunicate him. Geopolitics usually trumped religious purity in these matters. Half a century later, when Alexius Komnenos and the papacy were in negotiations over the First Crusade, the Great Schism was not mentioned at all. Neither side had any interest in rocking the diplomatic boat, and one of the papacy's goals in calling for the Crusades was to restore good relations with their eastern brethren. But if it was such a non-event, then how did it become known as the Great Schism? That title seems to have been applied to the incident by 19th and 20th century scholars. In one sense, this is a mistake, but in another, it does reflect a certain reality. Some of you may have read about the schism before and heard how Kirularius and the legates argued with one another, how the patriarch manipulated the emperor and stirred up riots against the visiting Westerners. Most of this colouring has now been seriously questioned by modern historians. Much of the characterization of Kirularios as arrogant and overbearing comes from the writing of Michael Pselos. But Pselos doesn't mention the schism. His criticism of the patriarch refers to later events and indeed his own humiliation before the Synod. So the idea that this was a dramatic confrontation that torpedoed relations between East and West is inaccurate. But there is a certain logic to seeing this as the moment when relations between the two sides became irrevocably broken. From this point onwards, the history of Byzantium and the West is one of increasing mistrust and violence. None of which were caused by the Great Schism, but certainly this incident put in writing the accusations of one side against the other, which would later be used to justify horrific acts on both sides. So although the excommunication may not in itself have been consequential, it is symbolic of an undercurrent that, thanks to geopolitics, will lead to much tragedy in the future. 
During the course of the podcast, we've seen many incidents like this from across the centuries. Monophysite reforms, iconoclasm, the battle over Boris and the Bulgarian church. In fact, Byzantine scholars, when looking back, identified that as the key moment. They saw the conversion of Bulgaria as the time when it became clear that East and West had separated. It was during that period that the patriarch Photius distributed a letter to his fellow archbishops setting out some Western errors of practice, the most glaring of which was the filioque, the addition of a word to the creed in the Latin rite, which the East strongly objected to. Interestingly, during Basil II's reign, the Pope had written him a letter which included this additional word in the creed. So the Byzantines withdrew formal recognition of the papacy from their prayers until this error was corrected. Such was the haphazard nature of medieval diplomacy, this fact seems to have been forgotten during the 1054 negotiations. So in technical terms, the two churches had already been in schism for the past 50 years before this incident, but no one seems to have remembered or brought it up at the time. The reality was that Rome and Constantinople worshipped in different ways, in different languages. Differences were inevitable. So long as each side needed to cooperate in the political sphere, these clashes would be kept under wraps. And that's perhaps what the Great Schism really represents. The moment when, geopolitically, the papacy decided they could do without Byzantium anymore. Turkic raids are about to resume in the east, preventing Byzantium from spending any more time or money defending Italy. The papacy, determined not to be put back under the German emperor's thumb, made a key decision. If you can't beat them, make them join you. In 1059, five years after the excommunication, Pope Nicholas II would make an alliance with the Norman leader Robert Giscard. The papacy had concluded that the Normans were too difficult to dislodge, so why not use them as a military counterweight to the Germans? The Normans would become loyal vassals of the Pope, and in return their conquests would receive the blessing of Rome. This decision had a massive impact on Byzantium and relations with the West. By endorsing Giscard, the papacy legitimized his acquisition of Byzantine territory and encouraged him to take more. From this point on, Giscard styled himself, by the grace of God and St. Peter, Duke of Apulia and Calabria, and by their help, future Duke of Sicily. This was a claim on all southern Italian Byzantine territory and the orthodox populations of Sicily, which the empire so recently had gone to war to reclaim. The papacy did not intend to provoke Byzantium directly. They were looking after their own strategic needs, but it was a move that also served their interests well. It had long rankled in Rome that so many churches on its own doorstep were not subject to its right or its discipline. 
Now the Normans would begin to enforce papal supremacy in the Orthodox South. Slowly, over the generations, Orthodox worship would be eradicated. The communication and cooperation which the south of Italy had for so long provided would be gone within 20 years. Next time, Constantine Monomachos will leave the stage and Act 2 of this century of narrative will come to a close. The people-pleasing emperor will end his days pleasing no one as he tries to squeeze from them every drop of tax revenue he can in order to pay the army. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.